Lord, we do thank you that you bring us laughter, you bring us reverence, you bring us changed hearts. Father, we are people who are facing the, the, the prospect of real change. This text would call us to, to change. Grant to us, Lord, courage and faith. Help us listen. Help us believe. This is your moment, Lord. The drama is underway, and you will come through. You are always faithful, and you are always at work. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. God is moving, and God is working. We believe, it, we believe this because our scriptures tell us that. God is active. We're in on us a great secret. What we see in the world, what we see in the headlines, is not actually the final statement about what's going on in the world. God is working. We're looking today at chapter 3, verses 11 through 13, and let me just share with you that Paul loves triad thinking. He loves grouping three concepts together. He's done it a few times already, and here in verses 11 through 13, we have a kind of triad thinking going on, and it's a prayer in the middle of the epistle. Paul has a prayer for his friends in Thessalonica. He's trying to get back to them. He established this church. If you would like to try and get geographically oriented, we're talking about Macedonians, essentially, a place east of of Greece. And Thessalonica was one of the first places where Paul planted a church, and he wants to get back to them because he wants to train them in their faith. He's done, by God's grace, a fantastic job. They are a strong church, and they are growing. But this prayer that he writes out here functions like a benediction. You know how at the end of the service, the minister will stand, and the minister will hold their hands out, and they will say words of blessing to you. God has the last word. He has the first word. We're called to worship, right? And God has the last word. And that will happen today. It is words of blessing. Go into a troubled, difficult world with the blessing of God's grace, guidance upon you. You will not be left alone. And I hope I communicate that to you as we conclude today. But basically, I'd like to just share with you some ideas about God directing, God moving and God establishing. As we think about what I'd, I would call benediction living, I was kind of looking for a title. I don't know if you're into titles of sermons, but benediction living. Now, let me share with you what a blessing is. Have you ever thought about when, when we use the word, it's kind of a Christianese word, you know, we kind of talk in terms of it's like an insider. Of, what's, what does it mean by blessed? To be blessed is this. To be blessed is to experience the goodness of, of what you're doing, the goodness of your attitude, the goodness of what's taking place, it's to experience it in the moment. So, I don't know if you've ever served in the nursery. 
Now, some of you, you realize it's, it's, a, it's good. It's good for you. Others of you are a little doubtful. But to serve, and maybe you even serve outside of your comfort zone, you sense it wasn't that bad. I tend to overreact emotionally to things, right? Oh, it's going to be terrible. It's the worst, you know. And then I have this steady, loving person, Marianne, who just looks at me and says, she's seen this for 38 years. And uh, she waits, and then I calm down, right? To be blessed means that in the moment, you're experiencing the strength and presence God provides. It's not some abstract thing. So if you give financially to the church, you might feel it hurts. You might feel the sting of that a little bit. But then you realize the, you sense the goodness of it. And I'll tell you, that is to be blessed. And Paul is wanting the Thessalonians to be blessed, to understand God moves. God opens doors. God blesses his people when they express love and God blesses his people when they prize holiness okay it's kind of the general sense of what's going on here now this is a um, this is a great perspective grabbing part of God's word for us um this tells us that as we think about God moving uh, and that Paul is waiting on God to open the door to get back to Thessalonica. In fact, he even attributes it to Satan, and we're not really sure what he means by that, but Satan has been hindering him from getting back to Thessalonica. We as modern people, well, we manage time. That's our specialty, right? We manage it. We slice it up. We put planners together and get these little hour little blocks, right? We get it all figured out. And then our plane's delayed for 45 minutes, and people just like, they just can't, just can't handle it, you know. We are the masters of these, these 60 seconds that make up a minute. We want instant, instant gratification. We can't bear the idea of waiting. Paul's waiting. He's waiting. And he tosses up this prayer in the middle of this epistle. Oh, may you know that when I get there, it's because the Father opened doors. And may you, may you, as he writes this, may you move in love and may you prize holiness. So he's making the most of his time. He's writing an epistle. And so the truths that Paul has in his mind about God are interpreting his moment. God's truths interpret for us what's going on. Paul experiences the limitation of this world. Even spiritual forces, and his response is to go upward in his heart to God. So first... God directs our steps. That's the first idea. God directs our steps for ministry awaits. Verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. Very 
God-centered perspective. Again, the remarkable patience. Teachers love to teach. Preachers love to preach. Nurturers love to nurture. Organizers love to organize. Planners love to plan. But what if you can't? What if you can't? What do you do? Do you turn away from your interpretation of what's going on when you can't do what you want? What happens in the chemistry of your heart? This is really what we as a church want to specialize in. We really don't get excited about Bible facts. I said this recently. Uh, Jericho's 15 miles north of Jerusalem. Will that change anyone's life? Does that make sense? Now, maybe it can. I would be fascinated if you can work that out. But we're interested in the heart chemistry of what it looks like to have, here he is, he's at a place likely in Corinth, and getting back to Thessalonica just seems, wow, God's got to open the doors here. We are really impatient in our day and age. I was in Houston Airport just last weekend, and um, please don't tell Marianne, but I was looking for a Dunkin' Donuts, okay? Please don't. Lead to conflict. No, I'm just kidding. Um, So I look up, and there's a sign that says there's an app for the Houston Airport. Did you know that? Who, who of us would could bear not having an app for the very airport itself? Right? Um, and I thought, wow, that is complicated. I've got to log in. I've got to get a, you know, I've got all this, all this, these steps. And so I just talked to a security guard. He said, yeah, it's down that hall. Okay, thanks for being my app. You know, but we just can't bear. The technology is going to save us from all suffering. But we're tempted. When you're frustrated, what happens inside you? I'm very interested. When you can't get what you want, are you tempted to define yourself right then and there? I'm just a blob of frustration. It's just a poor me experience. I knew this would happen. Some of you who are really good planners, you beat yourself because I should have planned this better. I should have thought about that. This experience defines me. It's definitive of my very existence. Do you think that? See, that's the first movement of our hearts. That's the first movement. The movement is inward. And now we're, we're sensing we didn't get what we wanted. Now what are we going to do? Maybe you sense someone else created this problem. Go after them. Bitterness, heart, heartache, accusations. Let's fix this problem. I've got this, this movement in my heart. I'm troubled, right? That's the first movement. Paul has the same movement. It's going on in his heart right now. Can't get to Thessalonica. Now, that's the experience. Now, what's the movement? That's the second movement. This is so critical. The second movement of the heart is upward. The The first movement is critical. What am I experiencing? And what are the resources of God's grace as I experience in this moment? 
And then there's the second movement, but I have the providence of God. Fancy word for God controlling everything. I have the providence of God, and it is not a threat to me. Think about that. God's orchestration of everything, including the frustrations, is not a threat to us believers. And we've got to work at that. We've got to work at that. This momentary, tiny slice of frustration at Corinth does not define the Apostle Paul. How are you doing with these moments of frustration? These, can I say it, tiny moments of your life. Blaise Pascal, a French philosopher, a mathematician, he put it this way, the sound, the reasonable, the good, the sound means of escaping our misery. (laughs) Limitations, frustrations. Is contemplation. Now that's a fancy word for think it through. How do you escape the inner turmoil of I, this defines me, this frustration, this experience at, at this place in my life? He says this, the sound means of escaping our misery is contemplation, and he goes on, knowing ourselves in relation to God. Who provides the peace that passes understanding and who loves us. You have a heavenly father who can blow away barriers at any, at any moment. You know that. You have a heavenly father who can blow away and, and reduce to rubble a barrier instantaneously. And so if the barrier is there, it is still part of his goodness. So I often think of God's providence as a threat to me. I'm still working that through. I don't think I'm the only one. And so as we, as we observe and react to things that we never would have thought should happen, they did. <laughs> it happened. <laughs> uh, I, I grew up with an older brother who would drive in from USC in Southern California. And I was 10 years old, and he was a college student, and he would be driving for Thanksgiving. I've told this many times. But here I am, a 10-year-old bro- little brother, excited to see my older brother come in. And he drives in. We've waited. He's late for turkey dinner on Thanksgiving. And he pulls on in with his laundry, you know, those college kids. And he pulls in, and the first thing he would say, he would talk about the traffic in L.A. for hours. Well, for a long time at least. And then he would say this. He would say, that's not my reality. (laughs) Here I am as a 10-year-old kid being trained in how, that's not my reality. Meaning, I live for comfort. I live to avoid difficulties, and especially Highway 10 going, going east to Redlands, California during Thanksgiving. That's not my reality. Do you say that? That's not my reality. Bearing with someone else, having some difficulty. That's not my reality. Nope, nope. God can do a lot of good things, but that isn't, that's not part of it. You have a loving Father who can give you the grace to be upheld while you experience barriers. Let your heart have a double movement. The movement of a prayer upwards. Oh, Father, I'm waiting for you to move. 
I would like this desire fulfilled, but I'm waiting for you to move. That's what Paul's doing. Now, this is interesting, isn't it? Some of you have commented. You said, I had no idea these. I, I had no idea these. That, that Thessalonians was full of so many little gems. Part of reading your Bible is to not speed read it, but look carefully. Watch every little phrase. Notice what's happening. When you're hurt, God has not stopped his good purposes toward you. And every time you experience some hardship, take ten looks at God's good providence toward you. Imagine a church where we more and more instinctively kind of get this. This is like the culture of the church. We, we know how to minister to people who are experiencing barriers and hardships. We know how to, we, we, we have a sense of accepting God's providence. And maybe, maybe we had some great plan as a church, and that just didn't happen. Okay, we'll be all right. That God is teaching us to depend upon him. And this is the blessed life, is to experience in the moment the goodness and grace of attitude and perspective. Now, this leads us then to God moving, and God moves in us to increase love for this is the mark of the Christian, the second idea. God is moving. Now, God is moving in a particular way to increase love. Look, look at verse 12. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another. And then notice, and for all, as we do for you. Christian maturity centers on love. If we were to be discipled by the Apostle Paul... If we were all in a group and he was training us, I guarantee you that love would be the center of his curriculum. And if we were not growing in love, we were not maturing as Christians. And he says, increase and abound in love. What's interesting is how he trained these folks. He, they had already excelled in love, and Paul is go, telling them to go even further. He's like, like, like a coach to an exhausted athlete who's done really well. Okay, let's do 10 more. And, and in fact, in, in chapter 5, verse 9, he says, Now about your love for one another, we don't need to write to you. <laughs> so his training really worked. Now there's two aspects of this love. First of all, you see the one another's. That's reciprocal love among us, right? By the way, ladies, I follow you on Facebook. I make, I hope, other encouraging comments. You are loving each other. We have a Facebook group for ladies in the church. Join, join in. But I'll just tell you, uh, this reciprocal love is also, uh, okay, the idea of love is to move outside the walls of the church. Notice Paul says, and for all. So this is not an us for and no more love. This is not an ingrown love. This is a, an outward looking love. Now, that's for the city of Thessalonica. I think of the I think of the pagan world, the ancient world. Uh, what I've studied about it, it's just a troubled world 
Um, it's insecure. There's tyrants in charge. Um, there's a lot of anxiety. Um, and then you have this solid group of people that God has created who are loving each other. It's, it's just unheard of in the ancient world. And then if they're not all related by way of race or socioeconomic class, and they're poor and they're wealthy, and they're and they're all there's this there's something going on. It's still true today. At General Assembly, I listened to a, a pastor from Boston who gets together with atheists and secular people and he has some format where he meets with them, whether some sort of lunch, and increasingly here's what's going on. The humanism experiment is over. Everyone's exhausted. There are no new ideas. People are realizing that whatever utopian effort they tried isn't working. These are the movers and shakers in Boston, and this pastor meets with them, and they're coming with questions. Our secular utopias are crumbling, and we are aware of it. Now, how do we grow in pursuing love? Now, it's another sermon on love, right? Some we kind of glaze over it a little bit. Yeah, another sermon on love. Well, how do we how do we grow in love? First of all, we're going to have to break down our personal barriers. I've got some personal barriers to loving people. When I travel on airplanes, I don't know what it was. I was I was I was mentored in airplane travel in the great glory days of Pan American Airlines and as a young kid having to dress up. I don't think I quite wore a tie, but you had to, you traveled with, you know, you were like royalty, man. You're traveling. You dress up. Now, I'm next to people in pajamas. I can't love them, by the way. It's very difficult. And I, uh, you know, I'm not overdressed, but I'm not underdressed. You see, that's a personal barrier to loving people. It's an arbitrary... (laughs) So, I mean, think about this. Like, I will be loving toward the nice-dressed man next to me, but if he dressed like a slob, I'm not loving to him. That's a, that's a PCA pastor talking to you today. So, what are your barriers? What are the conditions you, what are the conditions you put out there to, for people to, to, for you to love them? Are you aware of these things? There's dozens of them. There's a smoker at work. I can't hang out with him. Politics, they don't share my views. I can't reach out to them. They're of a different socioeconomic class. Uh, Nah, don't have time. Faith is connected to love, and love is connected to faith. Remember, you were loved And God put no standards upon his grace toward you. It was sheer love. And all the standards that we were to comply with were fulfilled by Jesus, our king, as he lived those 33 years under God's law, Galatians 4.4. And then he went to the cross for those who disregarded and rebelled against his standards. 
And so who are we to put, since God did not put a barrier upon us, who are we to put barriers upon others? Why love, though? Why is, why is love such a big deal? About, why is it such a big deal? Francis Schaeffer wrote a small, he was a very influential writer in the 60s and 70s. You should read his stuff. Francis Schaeffer wrote a little book called The Mark of a Christian. And he comments on John 13, 35. Jesus said, by, by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have amazing theology or if you're part of the right theological tribe. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's very interesting that Jesus speaks so often of love among the disciples. And Francis Schaeffer, here it is, ready? In John 13, the point was that if an individual Christian does not show love toward the other true Christians, the world has a right to judge that he is not a Christian. This is Francis Schaeffer. Here Jesus is stating something else which is much more cutting and much more profound. We cannot expect the world to believe that the Father sent the Son, that Jesus' claims are true, and that Christianity is true. Do you see how much is at stake? And that Christianity is true unless the world sees some reality of the oneness of true Christians. It's the final apologetic. You want a method to reach the world? Love the person next to you. There it is. And we might know, how does that work? How do people see our love inside this building and all that stuff? How does it work? Let me tell you, they are watching. People at your work are watching you, listening to your comments, and the world is watching, and it is the final apologetic. So how do we, how do we increase and abound in this love? Look at all the laws and you, you have for people to be acceptable to you. I'm still, at the, I'm still at the stage of how people dress. How about that? Okay, ready? So start searching your heart for where your laws are and get rid of them. And then you'll begin to abound more and more in love to people. Saul of Tarsus had plenty of law-dispensing capacity toward people. He's the Apostle Paul writing here. So he kind of has two names in the Bible. Saul of Tarsus, he was this raging, crazy man who thought he was righteous. And he was radically desperate before God's law, radically breaking God's law. But boy, did he dispense law for other people. This is where Paul, the Apostle, knows that the heart that has been trained in the gospel moves in love. Love is courageous. Love abides with people. Love suffers. Love is others-oriented. So, God directs our steps God moves in us to increase love. And then finally, God establishes hearts blameless. We're going to look at verse 13. For a day is approaching. Look at verse 13. So that he may establish your hearts. 
blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints, that he may establish your hearts. What comes to mind when you think of holiness? What comes to mind? Do you think of love being expressed among God's people? Do you see, contextually, I have to preach the context. Verse 13 connects with verse 12. Paul's discipling the, he wants to disciple the Thessalonians. He has a curriculum of love, and he does this in order that they would become steadfast and blameless. In other words, moving into the love curriculum establishes that you indeed are a disciple of Jesus. He connects holiness in in with growing in love. The word holiness has its root in a parallel word, sanctify. To sanctify means to set apart. Your mom may have had sanctified china for Thanksgiving. Right? That's the stuff you break out, right? And not, not break. Uh, I don't know how to say it. The stuff you use for Thanksgiving and it's special stuff, right? It's been set apart for a special use. That's you. You've been set apart for God's special use. And when Jesus returns triumphantly with all the saints, I love that, by the way, if you're looking for a Bible text to, to prove that your loved ones will are in the presence of Jesus, uh, Jesus comes back with them, by the way, verse 13. But the idea is that Paul wants to come to Thessalonica and he wants to establish their hearts in love. And to do that, he brings up the subject of holiness. D.A. Carson, who is a theologian in our day, D.A. Carson says that slavery to Christ is perfect freedom. And that's what God does. He begins to move in us and compels us to pursue J.I. Packer writes in his famous book, Knowing God, and please don't leave this earth without reading Knowing God. Trust me. Get a hold of it. Add it to your summer reading. J.I. Packer says this, Nothing can separate us from the love of God because the love of God holds us fast. Christians are kept by the power through the faith through faith unto salvation, 1 Peter 1.5. And the power of God keeps them believing as well as keeping them safe through believing. Listen to that phrase. The power of God keeps them believing. Your faith, Packer says, will not fail while God sustains it. That's growing in holiness. God sustaining your faith. And then he says this if you are not strong enough to fall, you are you are not strong enough to fall away while God is resolved to hold you. That's gospel confidence. You mean I'm so well-loved that? I'm so secure in the love of God that? You mean this is better than I thought? This is way better than I imagined? These gospel truths are to warm your heart such that when God calls you to grow in holiness, you respond, how can I not? I've been loved so well. It's not motivation out of guilt or shame or ought to. It's the compelling love of God, how that I've tasted, how can I not respond with obedience to the one who has loved me so well? 
I've been purchased. This is benediction living. God directs. I don't have to fear God's providence. God moves. And he calls me to love as the final apologetic before a watching world. And God establishes my heart in holiness, which is perfect freedom. These three three verses in our Bibles, this triad, this benediction, this prayer, is the blessed life. And in the middle of Thessalonians, the first epistle, Paul wants them to be a blessed people. Let's pray. Lord, you are the God of all blessing. Give your people joy as they respond in faith to what they've heard you say to them. In the name of Christ, we pray.